Now, I trust that you have your Bible open to Genesis 32. This is one of the great chapters of the Bible. Have I said that before? Well, I think so. There are a great many great chapters of the Bible, and this is one of them. This is actually the high point in the life of Jacob and can be called the turning point in his life. Now, this is not his conversion by any means. This man, in spite of the fact that he was living in the flesh, and believe me, he was living in the flesh, why, he was still God's man. That's the reason that you and I are told to be very careful today about judging folk about whether they're Christian or not. There are a lot of people that don't look like they're Christian. I'm sure that they are, or I'm almost sure that they are, but I don't know. And that's in the hands of the Lord. They just don't act like it, that's all. And they give no evidence. And this man, Jacob, gave none at all except these very faint instances of where God appeared to him and he did respond in a way. But now this man, who is God's representative and is God's witness in the world, and it's been a bad witness, but he can't keep that up. And so God's going to deal with him. To tell the truth, God is going to break his leg to get him, but God will break his leg in order to get him. And the Lord disciplines us. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. That's his method. He disciplines in that way. And we have already seen that Lot didn't look like he was a child of God, but he was. Peter says he vexed his righteous soul. And I tell you, he certainly was put through the fire, only he escaped the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the Lord put him through the fires of testing. And now that is Jacob's experience He's got his college degree, the College of Hard Knocks. Uncle Laban was the president and dean of the school, and he had graduation. And this boy, Jacob, gave his valedictorian, and it was a pitiful thing. Twenty years it took him to get his degree. And he says, I certainly worked for it. And the requirements, old Laban changed them ten times. That means every two years. Why, he had a new contract with Uncle Laban, and it was always to his disadvantage. This is the experience of this man. Now we come to this test, and God's going to have to deal with him because he's going to represent God, and God will deal with him. Now we come here to this 32nd chapter, and God will move in on him. I'd like to write over this chapter as I written verses of Scripture elsewhere over certain chapters we've come to is this one. It is Isaiah forty twenty nine. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. That's the experience now of this man. And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. God is beginning to deal with this man directly in order to bring him into the place of fruit-bearing and of 
real vital service and witness for him. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now, and I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants, and women servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. This boy Jacob is still clever, isn't he? He just can't let go, even after his experience with Laban now, and he's returning back, and he remembers now the last time, 20 years before that, why Esau was breathing out threatenings against him. And notice now he sends servants, and he says to the servants, says, when you get to Esau, my brother, you say to him, my Lord Esau of all things. And then he says, thy servant Jacob. Well, that's not the way Jacob had done it. He'd stolen the birthright, and he didn't steal the birthright, but he manipulated for it, and he stole the blessing. He'd been a rascal, but now his talk is different. He'd learned a few things, I guess, from Uncle Laban. My Lord Esau, thy servant Jacob. And so he sent the messengers. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. And that absolutely frightened poor Jacob, because he didn't know what all that meant. And Esau didn't indicate to the servants at all. I suppose Jacob quizzed them rather thoroughly and said, Did you detect any note of animosity or bitterness or hatred toward me? And I think the servant said, No, said, He seemed to be glad to get the information that you were coming to meet him. And now he's coming to meet you. But the fact he was glad didn't mean anything to Jacob, it could mean he'd be glad for the opportunity of getting revenge. Well, anyway, poor Jacob's upset. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and herds and the camels into two bands, and said, If Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. He's in a bad way, he thinks. Here he is with this brother of his coming to him. And so he divides up the group. He's being clever. And he says, if this boy, my brother, if he strikes one, then the other one can escape. And now notice verse 9. What does he do now? He appeals to God in his distress. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord which says unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. This is Jacob. And this man now appeals to God cries out to him on the basis of that he's the God of his father Abraham and the God of his father Isaac. And I begin now to detect a little change in his life. 
This is the first time I've ever heard him say, I'm not worthy of the least of thy mercies. Here he, for the first time, is acknowledging that he might be a sinner in God's sight. You know, we got a lot of fundamentalists that I don't think they've acknowledged they are sinners for years. I had a man that wrote me quite a lengthy letter. He was incensed that I would indicate that he's a sinner. And he told me what all that he had done and that he'd been saved and he now was not a sinner. I bet he is. <laughs> May I say to you, we're all sinners saved by grace. And as long as we're in this life, we've got that old nature that isn't even fit to go to heaven. And you know something else? It's not going to heaven. God's not going to let it go. Well, Vernon McGee can't go there. That's the reason he had to give me a new nature. The old one wasn't even fit to repair. And so this boy is beginning now to say he's not worthy. And when any man begins to move toward God on that basis, he'll find that God will communicate with him. And he makes this very interesting statement that he says, I went over this Jordan here just with his walking stick, my staff. That's all he had. Now he's coming back and he's got two bands. This is Jacob for you. And now will you notice, listen to him, verse 11, "'Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children.'" I tell you, he really cried out to God. And that night was a very difficult night for him, and he didn't have any aspirins to take that night. It was difficult. Verse 13, "...he lodged there that same night, took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau his brother, two hundred she-goats, twenty he-goats, two hundred ewes, twenty rams, thirty milk camels with their colts, forty kine, and ten bulls, twenty she-asses, and ten foals." You see, he's pretty generous with his stock now. "...and he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by themselves." And said unto his servants, Pass over before me, and put a space betwixt drove and drove. Now you see his tactic is this. He'll send out a drove, a very rich gift for his brother. And when that first drove would arrive, Esau would say, Well, what is this? He said, Well, we're bringing you a gift from your brother Jacob. And then he'd receive that. He'd ride on a little farther, meet another drove, same size. And he'd ask them, where are you going? Well, they said, we're going to meet Esau. Well, he said, I'm Esau. Well, he said, here's a gift for you. It's from your brother Jacob. Believe me, by the time that he got down to where Jacob and the family were, he'd be softened by them. You see, he's prayed to God, and he's reminded the Lord that you told me to return to my country. You said you to protect me. But does he believe God? No. He goes right ahead and makes these arrangements, which reveals he wasn't trusting God at all. And that, I'm afraid, is our same position. Many of us take our burdens to the Lord in prayer. We just spread them out before him. I do that. Then when we get through praying, we get right up and put each little burden right back on our back and start out again with it. We really don't believe him, do we? 
we don't really trust him as we should. Now, let me put in at verse 17, And he commanded the foremost, saying, When he saw my brother meeteth thee, and asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou, and whither goest thou, and whose are these before thee? Then thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. It's a present unto my lord Esau. And behold, also he's behind us. He's coming. And that would be one after another like that. This is the plan that he's working on. And now we find verse 20. And say ye moreover, Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us, for he said, I'll appease him with the present that goeth before me, and afterward I'll see his face. Peradventure he will accept me. So went the present over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. And he rose up that night, and took his two wives, and his two women servants, and his eleven sons, and passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. Now, this is the night. This is the great experience in his life that came to him. Now, you'll notice that he came to this very desolate place, the brook Jabbok at the crossing. I've been there, and I got away from the group purposely, and I took a walk across the bridge that's there now. The United States has built a very lovely road through that area, did it for the Heshemite kingdom of Jordan. And it takes you into that area to see, well, several things you wouldn't be able to see if you didn't have a good road, because that's quite a wilderness through there. And I took pictures of sheep that were drinking down at the brook Jabbok. It's a crossing there but a very bleak place. It's right down between two, we'd call them hills. They're not really mountains, but it's a very mountainous country. It's a very rugged country. And here is where this man came that night. He's not a happy man, and he's filled with fear and, and doubts. You see, chickens are coming home to roost. He'd mistreated Esau, and God never told him to get it that way. God would have gotten it for him. And so that night he sent across the brook Jabbok all that he had, but he stayed on the other side. Because even if his brother came, it might be he'd spare the family and just maybe kill Jacob. So Jacob's left alone. Now verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him, until the breaking of the day. Now, there's several things I'd like to get straight as we come to this wrestling match. I've heard it said that Jacob did the wrestling. Actually, Jacob did not do any wrestling at all. He didn't want to wrestle anybody. Let's be very frank. He has Uncle Laban back of him, who doesn't mean good at all. And he has his brother Esau ahead of him. And actually, Jacob is no match for either one. 
And he's caught now between a rock and a hard place. And he doesn't know which way to turn. Now, do you think he wanted to take on a third one that night? I don't think so. Time magazine, quite a few years ago, they put in the sporting section of the magazine, the writer there, he says, concerning the votes for who was the greatest wrestler, it says, not a vote went to the most famous athlete in history, wrestling Jacob. And lo and behold, they got a letter in the mail from someone who wrote in, says, can you tell me something about this wrestler Jacob? They had never heard of him before, and evidently they had never read their Bible at all. Well, he's no wrestler. Let's make that very clear here at the very beginning. That night, he's alone because he wanted to be alone, and he wasn't looking for a fight that night. Now, this man who wrestled with him, that's the question, who is this one that wrestled with him that night? Well, again, there's been a great deal of speculation about who it is. But I think it's none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. And I have some evidence for it. Over in Hosea, the 12th chapter, and I'd like to turn to that. Let me read this. Chapter 12 of Hosea, verse 1. Ephraim feedeth on wind, and falleth after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation. And they do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Egypt. The Lord hath also a controversy with Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his doings will he recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel, and prevail he wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. Even the Lord of hosts, the Lord is his memorial, or the Lord is his name. May I say to you, it was none other than Jehovah, the pre-incarnate Christ, who wrestled with him that night. Now, when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, old Jacob is not going to give up easy. He's not that kind of a man. And he wrestled. And finally, this one who wrestled with him broke his leg. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I'll not let thee go, except thou bless me. And what happened now? Jacob is just holding on. He's not wrestling. He's just holding on to this one. And he found out that you don't get anywhere with God by struggling and fighting. The only way that you get anywhere with him is by yielding and just holding on to him. Abraham had learned that. That's why Abraham said amen to God. He believed God. He counted to him for righteousness. Abraham reached the end of his rope and put his arms around God. And friends, when you get in that condition, then you trust God. I've read several letters recently from folk. One, a fellow that had been on dope. Another one who lost a little boy, a precious little boy in the home and had to reach out for help somewhere. Well, my friend, when you're willing to hold on, he's there, ready to help you. And he said unto him, What's thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob. <laughs> Not Jacob anymore, the one who is the usurper the trickster, but Israel, 
Why, Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with man, and hast prevailed. And now the new nature of Israel will be manifest in the life of this man. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. He had seen the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. You see, God had to cripple him to get him. God broke his leg, but he got him. And you're going to find out from here on, he's going to manifest a spiritual nature, dependence upon God. Another young man in the New Testament, a son of Jacob by the name of Saul of Tarsus, he tells us his struggle in the seventh of Romans that he couldn't win. <laughs> and finally, he found out by yielding and letting the Spirit of God, what the law could not do, the Spirit now is able to do in your life. How does he do it? By an act of the will, by yielding to him. And that's exactly what Jacob did. Jacob won, but he won. He got the victory not by fighting and struggling, but by yielding. And that's the only way you and I will get anywhere with God today. Now today, friends, as we come to this 33rd chapter of the book of Genesis, we're following along in the life of this man Jacob. Now, last time we saw what we call the high point in his life, and that high point was that he met God. God went after him. That night, we're told a man wrestled with him, and the man did the wrestling, not Jacob. He's not looking for another fight. He's got enough trouble on his hands. He has Uncle Laban back of him and Brother Esau ahead of him. And the last time he saw both of them, they were breathing out threatenings against him. And this man, Jacob, is not in a position to take on someone else. And therefore, the man took the initiative. He was the aggressor. And as we said, it was the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, if you'll notice how God dealt with him, how the Lord dealt with him, this man, Jacob, refused to give in at first. That's typical of him. And he knew a few holes. He thought that after a while he'd be able to overcome. He found out he couldn't overcome, but he would not surrender. And so what did God do? Well, absolutely God in a moment with his superior strength could have pinned his shoulders down. But may I say to you, he wouldn't have pinned his will down it's like that little boy I told you about. His mama made him sit in the corner in his room. And after a while, she heard a noise in there. And she said to him, Willie, are you sitting down? And he said, yes, I'm sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside of me. And old Jacob would have been standing up on the inside of him. He wasn't ready to yield. And notice how God did it. He touched the hollow of his thigh. Just a touch of the finger of God. And this man becomes helpless. But you see, God's not pinning his shoulders down. This man keeps on with him. And Jacob holds on to him. The man says, let me go. And Jacob said, no, 
I want your blessing. (laughs) He's now clinging to God. The struggling and striving is over. And from here on, I think you're going to find a man not in a moment's notice change because psychologists tells you today that these habits we form, they set up certain synaptical connections in our nervous system and we do things by habit. We're creatures of habit and this man will lapse back in his ways many times. But I want to tell you, we begin to see something in the man now. And before we're through with him, why we find that he is a real man of God. Actually, we see him at home and in the land of Haran. He's a man of the flesh. And then here at Peniel, at the brook Jabbok, he's fighting. And now after this, and on down into Egypt especially, he's a man of faith. First, a man of the flesh, a man that's fighting, struggling, and then a man of the faith. Now, that's the apostle Paul. There were three periods in his life. He was converted, and then he thought he could live the Christian life. And that's where I made my mistake when I became a Christian. I frankly thought I could live the Christian life. After all, Vernon McGee didn't need any help. I could do it as easy, but I didn't do it. That was the hard part. And that is the part where you'll recall that Paul had his problem. What I would not do, I continue to do. And he found out that there was not only no good in the old nature, but there was no strength or power in the new nature. And finally, we hear him crying out in Romans 7, verse 24, "'O wretched man that I am!' Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then something happened. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's through him that you'll have to do all your thanking because that's where your help is going to come, through him. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And that's the way that it is with all of us. We have that old nature. And it can't do anything that'll please God. In fact, Paul went on to say that it was an enmity against God. They that are in the flesh, Paul said, cannot please God. Romans 8, 8. You cannot please God in the flesh. And it's not until you and I yield to him. And yield means it's an act of the will of a regenerated person yielding to God. What a picture that we have here. And all of these things happened unto these for examples unto us. Now, we are going to follow Jacob from here on, and something happens in the 33rd chapter. Almost think we've met a new man. To tell the truth, we have met a new man. Now, let me read chapter 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau came, and with him four hundred men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. He wanted to spare his family, you see. So he separated them. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them, bowed himself to the ground, seven times until he came near to his brother. Uh, You know, I'd love to have had a picture of Jacob meeting his brother Esau. 
I suppose he was a mile from him, and he started bowing. He came with his hat in his hand, because this man Esau has 400 men with him, and this man Jacob doesn't know how he's coming, whether it's as a friend or foe. Now notice, though, verse 4. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Well, they're twins, they're brothers, and let bygones be bygones. I think Esau, God had certainly touched him because he had sworn vengeance that he'd kill his brother. Now, will you notice? And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? And he said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children. They bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And he said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. Jacob, I think, believes for a moment that his strategy of approaching his brother had worked. But notice, it wasn't necessary. And listen now to Esau, and what a change. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. I have enough, my brother. That's what Esau said. You didn't need to send that to me. After all, Esau had plenty. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. You know, this is almost a humorous scene. When up to the time that Jacob left home, these two fellows were after each other in the flesh, each one trying to get something from the other, and especially Jacob. And now we find Jacob in a new office altogether. Here he is insisting that his brother take a gift and his Brother insists, why, Jacob, I have plenty. I don't need it. You don't need to give it to me. It's not essential. And Jacob insisted. And believe me, friends, something's happened to the boy. He's like Zacchaeus up the tree. You know, when our Lord got him down and went into his home, something happened to Zacchaeus when he came out. He said, I'm no longer the tax collector that's been stealing from people and being dishonest. I now want to return not only anything I've taken in a wrong way, and you can be sure he had, but I want to restore it fourfold. What a difference. What a change had taken place. And you certainly knew which house Jesus had visited. And certainly here's a man that's a little different than the man that we met before. What a change. Before, he traded a bowl of soup to get a birthright. Now he's willing to give flocks and herds to his brother for nothing. And his brother doesn't want to take it. And he insists. Now his brother finally took it. He urged him and he took it. Why? Because in that land, in that day, 
to have refused the gift that was urged upon you like this would have been an insult. And so Esau takes it. And he said, let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before thee. Esau said, you'll return back to the land. Now let me go before you and show the way. I'll be protection for you also. Verse 13 now of chapter 33 of Genesis, I'm reading. He said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. And Jacob said, I'm moving with my family, and I have flocks here and herds, and they have little ones, and I can't go very fast. Now, you, of course, with that army of 400 will probably want to move much faster, so you go ahead. Now, he says, verse 14, Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me and the children be able to endure until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. You see what he wants to do now? He said, I can't keep up with you, brother Esau, but if you let me go ahead, then we'll set the pace that we can keep. But you probably should go ahead. Verse 15, And Esau said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir. That's where he lived, down in the land of Edom. And so Esau returns back to his land, to his home, and he leaves, though, a guard to go along to assist Jacob. Now, verse 17, And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and built him a house, and made booths for his cattle. But that is, he put up barns for them. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, here is something that you can just pass by so quickly and easily without paying too much attention to this at all. The great change has come in this boy now, that is, this man Jacob. All of Jacob's clever scheming, you see, to present a gift to his brother Esau, it just comes to naught. And God had prepared the heart of Laban not to harm Jacob, so God prepared the heart of Esau to receive Jacob. And now he has peace on both fronts. And Esau did not want the gift of Jacob, as he had an abundance, but Jacob insisted that he take it which he did, and both of these brothers seemed to be generous and genuine in their reconciliation. We have no reason to doubt it. And since Esau was now prosperous and attached no particular value to the birthright anyway, there's no reason why he should not be reconciled to his twin brother. Now the sunshine is beginning to fall on Jacob's life now. Laban is appeased and Esau is reconciled. God arranged all this for him. Now, had Jacob been left to his own cupidity and his own cleverness, he would have come to his death in a violent manner. Jacob is going to look back over his life before too long, and when he does, he's going to see the hand of God in his life, and he's going to give God the glory. However, the evil he has sown it's going to bring forth a full harvest. Trouble is the offing for
for this man. It's there waiting for him. Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir. And we find here that we can write over that verse, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So we bid goodbye to Esau for the time being. He'll be back, however, for the funeral of his father Isaac when he dies. Now, Jacob is sometimes criticized because he stopped here at Succoth and did not proceed on to Bethel. We actually ought not to expect too much of Jacob at this time. He's been crippled, and he's just learning to walk with his spiritual legs. Jacob builds an altar here, as his grandfather Abraham was accustomed to do. And the fine features that Jacob identifies his new name with the name of God, El, Elohi, Israel, God, the God of Israel. Now, this is real growth in a man who's just learning to walk. Let's put it like this. He's on the way to Bethel, but he hadn't arrived there yet. And so we find him journeying here to Succoth. And now I read verse 18. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paden Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And notice this. And he erected there an altar, and he called it El Elohi Israel. Up to this time, you'll find that this boy has not erected many altars to the Lord God of his fathers. He just hasn't done that. But now he becomes a testimony for God. Now we are going to see when we get to the next chapter here that he made a mistake in stopping in this place. We're going to see that there's a scandal in the family of Jacob, that Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, by Leah, is defiled by Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, and Simeon and Levi, her brothers, her full brothers, they avenge this act by slaying all the inhabitants of the city of Hamor. And you can't justify that. And this is a dark blot on the family of Jacob. And it reveals the fact that he didn't get away too soon when he left his uncle down in the land of Haran. We need to see that, that God was right in getting him away from that environment. There are two things that God in Genesis spends a great deal of time doing. And I must pause to call attention to it. I think I have mentioned it once or twice. I've mentioned these things separately, but now let me mention them together. First of all is the heredity. God is very much concerned that a believer marry a believer and that a believer not marry an unbeliever. That's important for the sake of heredity. Now, the second thing is the environment of the individual. And you see that especially in the life of Jacob. He has a big family, not only with their 12 sons, 
there were daughters. We are only given the record of this one because she features in this chapter here, and it's a sad one. It's a very sad one. Now, therefore, there's something else for us to note here as we come to it, because this is important to the understanding of Genesis, and that is that there's trouble in the families. Have you noticed that? There was strife and trouble in the family of Abraham. There was strife and trouble in the family of Isaac. We saw there that here was Isaac having a favorite. Esau was his favorite. And Rebekah, well, her favorite was her son, Jacob. And that caused trouble in the family a great deal. Now, we see there's a great deal of trouble in the family of Jacob. Well, he has quite a few offspring about. Now, he did stop here in Shalem, and he stayed here for a while, and it's going to cause a great deal of sorrow that'll come to him. And very frankly, chapter 34, and we may not spend too much time with it next time, but it's a sad and sordid chapter here in the book of Genesis. We have another one coming up, but this is a sad and sordid chapter, and it must have been a heartbreak to old Jacob at this time, and probably we ought to call him Israel, because that is his new name, and he's built an altar, and there's one thing that's for sure. He's giving now a testimony to the living and true God. There is a change in his life. And it's a growth, it's a development. And again, I want to make this statement because this is a lesson for us today. Don't expect that as a Christian that you're going to become full-grown overnight. Now, God adopts you into the family as a full-grown son where you're able to understand divine truth because the Holy Spirit is your teacher. But your growth and my growth is slow. Progress is very slow, because we may learn truths in the Bible, but we will find that in our lives that you and I go through very much like Simon Peter, stumbling here and falling down there. And Thank God Simon Peter kept getting up and brushing himself off, and there came the day when he had a very close walk with the Lord. In fact, he walked to the cross even as our Lord did. But you and I need to recognize that in our own lives, the growth is slow, and therefore the growth in others. Don't expect too much. I know sometimes parents of children that are converted, they expect too much of them. Let's not expect too much of other folk, but let's also expect a great deal of ourselves. Now, if you found your place here in the 34th chapter, of Genesis, you recognize that we're still talking about Jacob. A great deal is said about Jacob. He's a very colorful character, and he certainly keeps up the interest. And in the family that he has, there is one thing that stands out as something is always happening. There's not a dull moment. They continually give us quite a bit of excitement. And then there's such great spiritual lessons that are here for us. Now we are coming to this, though, that is very sad and sordid. In the 34th chapter, 
is not a very pretty chapter. In fact, we have three chapters in the book of Genesis that are not pretty at all. And do you know that they all concern the children of Leah? Leah, the eldest daughter of Laban that was given to Jacob. And I think this gives evidence of the fact that God does not approve plurality of marriages. The the very fact this was forced on Jacob to a certain extent, but that didn't make it right by any means. And we find here that Jacob at least went along with it, and we find here in this section that the children of Leah are all involved in sin. Now, she had four boys, Simeon and Levi, and also Judah. And in the 35th chapter, we're coming to another one of the sons, and that concerns Reuben, the firstborn. So every one of her sons turned out rather badly, at least sin in their lives. Now, there is something else to note here. We're dwelling on the families. God is putting an emphasis there. We've said a great deal about the strife that's in all of these families, But now you notice another element that is entered in, and that is there is a sordidness, there is a shoddiness that has seeped into the family of Jacob that was not in the family of Abraham or Isaac. A great deal of of difficulty, and they had problems, but nothing like we have here now. And this again reveals the fact that God wanted to get this man Jacob and his family out from the home of Laban, out from that atmosphere, because of the very atmosphere why that gave the background for these awful sins that are mentioned here. Now, will you notice, as I read this section here, and this man Jacob has stopped here at Shalem, And he has bought him a nice little place out in a suburban area of town. And he is attempting to orient himself with the culture of that day. Well, it wasn't a good place. And God wants to separate this man from that area. And believe me, after you read this chapter, you come to the conclusion he better separate him. Now I'm reading. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. She went visiting in this town of Shalem. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. Or let me put it in the language that the papers of today, the news media, would say that he raped her. And if they can say it in print today and on radio and television, certainly this poor preacher can say it. I think the pulpit today has become weak because it's not strong, because it doesn't at least use the language of the day in which we live. And I do not mean the slang, but there's a lot of strong language that needs to be used today. Sin needs to be spelled out. There was a time when... Sin was sin. Now they've taken the S off of it, and you're in the N group today if you are a sinner. But that's not the way God spells sin. He still spells it with a capital S, 
a capital I and a capital N. And you'll notice that I is right in the middle of the word. That's where all of us are. Now, this is the sordid story that we have before us. And the very interesting thing is that the boy, Shechem, was apparently in love with the girl and would have married her. Notice verse 3, "...and his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel, and spake kindly unto the damsel." Now, he really wanted to marry her, and would have married her. "...and Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife." And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved, and they were very wroth, because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And we certainly agree that it should not have been done, but it had been. And now the fellow wants to marry her. Well, I tell you, when Jacob heard it, he called for these twelve boys of his to come in, and they had a war council. And I'm of the opinion that Jacob probably should not have made as much of it. And when Hamor, the father of Shechem, came out to him, it's obvious what he came for. He wanted to get the girl for his son's wife. And Jacob probably should have yielded to that, because that was, shall I say, the best way out at the time. It's certainly the thing they did It wasn't the best way by any means, and God did not approve of it. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you, give her him to wife, and make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. Now, frankly, that would have been wrong. But this, I think, would have been right because of what had transpired and taken place. That is, that probably Dinah should have been given to him. Will you notice now what happened? And ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. And all of this reveals that Jacob is going to have to move on, that this is no place for him, mixing with these people in the land. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye shall say unto me I'll give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I'll give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem, and Hamor his father deceitfully, and said, Because he had defiled Dinah their sister. Now, I feel like that Jacob here should have had certainly a little bit more to say to restrain these boys of what they're going to do, because they are deceiving the man. And they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. And the thing that disturbs me about the incident is that the sin that's been committed isn't the reproach. 
But the fact that he was a foreigner made it difficult or impossible to give her as a wife. But in this will we consent unto you, if ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Then will we give our daughter unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. Now, this is the thing that they are to do. Go through the ritual of circumcision. And this ought to be a warning today to a great many. I know a fellow that he married a girl. He told her that he would accept the Lord. In fact, the matter is why they came in for counseling and asked me to perform the ceremony. And I, of course, would not with him not being a Christian. And she claimed she would not marry him unless he became a Christian. Well, when he came in, I talked with him. He said he would accept Christ. And then we had prayer. And then I asked him, I said, now what have you really done? And I never heard such humming and hawing, beating around the bush as this boy did. And I very frankly said right before him, I said, young lady, I'll not perform the ceremony. I don't think the young man is converted. Well, they felt like I was being very harsh, and they went down the street and got another preacher. He performed the ceremony. She told me later that he had come to her and told her she she tried to get him to go to church. And, of course, he had a good reason for not coming to hear me preach because I'd been so cruel to him. Then she agreed to go to another church, and they went two or three times. And then finally, he just said to her point blank out, he said, really, I'm not a Christian. Well, just to go through the ceremony, even of saying you trust Christ, doesn't mean you have. And joining the church, I find a great many people today, they think if they just nod the head, faith doesn't seem to mean very much to them. It's a tremendous experience, friends, to trust Christ as your Savior. There's nothing quite like it. Nothing to compare to it in this world. When you trust Christ as Savior, He does something for you. didn't do anything for that boy. You know, Mark Twain had the same experience. He was not a Christian. And he was in love with a very beautiful, wonderful Christian girl. And she would not marry him until he became a Christian. And he professed that he accepted Christ as his Savior And they started out that way. Well, Mark Twain became very famous, as you know, and he was entertained by all of the famous people of the world. And he moved in that society. And one day when he came back to his home in Missouri, he said to her when she wanted to go to church, he said, look, and calling her by the pet name that he had for her, he said, look, I can't keep up the front any longer. You go on to church. I know now I'm not a Christian. May I say that that made a very unhappy home, and it absolutely spoiled the life of this lovely Christian girl. Now, here are these men saying, if you'll go through the rite of circumcision, it'll make everything all right. And a great many people think, well, if you join the church and nod your head, and be able to use the right vocabulary and quote the right verse, that means you're Christian. My friend, that doesn't mean you're Christian. If you've trusted Christ, something's happened. (laughs) And things are different now. 
if you've trusted him. Now, the very interesting thing is, notice what happened. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. And the young man deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honorable than all the house of his father. I would say this boy is doing the honorable thing at this point. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came under the gate of their city and communed with the man of their city, saying, These men are peaceable with us, therefore let them dwell in the land, trade therein. For the land, behold, it's large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the man consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. In other words, they expected really to rob Jacob before it was over. Uh, I'm going through the ceremony for everyone except the boy who wanted to marry the girl. It was as phony as it could be. It's like just joining the church when you're not converted. And unto Hamer and Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city. Every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of the city. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. This was really trickery, let me tell you. And Dinah's brothers were Simeon and Levi. They were full brothers that wanted to get revenge. And notice their revenge. They go a little too far. And the very fact that Hamor intended to dispossess Jacob and his sons of the great wealth which Jacob had accumulated in Haran, it doesn't justify the brutal act of Simeon and Levi but it does reveal the impossible situation of dealing with the inhabitants of that land. And the thing they've done is a very terrible thing. Now notice, they slew Hamer and Shechem, his son with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. The other sons joined in on this. Now, this reveals something in the family of Jacob, as you can see, that's not right, that they had learned in the home of Laban. They took their sheep, their oxen, their asses, that which was in the city and that which was in the field, and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, Ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites, the Perizzites. And I being few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. Now again, notice something that is obviously wrong here in the life of Jacob. Jacob rebuked Simeon and Levi for giving him a bad name. He says, why, they'll all be after me. But he doesn't rebuke them for the sin that they've committed. That is the interesting thing here. We get today a wrong perspective, I think, sometimes of sin. 
and of our actions. We think of the effect that it's going to have. Now, we have in the churches today many men and women, for that matter, they won't take a stand on certain issues. Why? Well, the little crowd they run with may not accept them. They are with a little clique, and they don't dare stand for anything that the little clique wouldn't stand for. It's never a question of whether it's right or wrong. It's a question of whether it ingratiates me to the crowd. God have mercy today on Christians that shape their lives by those that are around them and are constantly looking for the effect their conduct's going to have on others. And they don't look on whether this is the right thing or the Christian thing or as a child of God, is this something I should do or not do? And that's the reason our churches are filled today with those who compromise. And little wonder that today we have so many frustrated, unhappy Christians. I tell you, it's a wonderful thing to stand for the truth today. And when you stand for it, that you don't have to compromise. Well, how wonderful it is when we'll do that. But poor old Jacob, he's growing, but he hasn't grown that far. You may be sure of that. And then these boys, of course, attempt to defend themselves, and they said, should he deal with our sister as with a harlot? Well, it's a good question. And I would say that if they wanted to take the judgment in their own hands, they first of all should have heard this boy out and let him marry their sister. It wouldn't be the right thing to do in the sense that it would be the best thing to do under the circumstances. But it's not the right thing by any means. But it's the only thing to do under the circumstances. And certainly that would have been better than to go to the extreme of murdering. And that's what it amounted to, the inhabitants of that land. And friends, there's no excuse that can be offered and I hope no one's attempting to justify these men. I certainly am not. I have no defense to offer for them at all. They should not have done the thing that they did here. But we must understand that they are not living in the light of Romans 12. And Romans 12, beginning at verse 19, says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the whole thing boils down to this particular thing here. And that is, for a Christian today, Romans 12 is the policy that we should... Follow The very minute we attempt to take revenge or get vengeance today, it means we're no longer walking by faith. We're saying we can't trust God to work this out. But very candidly, I'm not sure that you could bring these boys, and certainly Jacob, up to that level at this particular time. But you cannot justify this terrible deed that they have committed here. And you can well understand that they're acting because of their feeling for their sister and the shame that it brought upon the family. So you see that this boy Jacob now is beginning to see that a whole lot of chickens come home to roost, not just a few. 